Peace be with you. All right, I've got a tangent right off the bat. That's how long it took. Um, do you know why we use the phrase, peace be with you, um, occasionally in Christian liturgy? Don't answer if you do. Um, I'm going to. There are, there are several reasons, but most significantly, I think, this is, these are the words that the resurrected Christ spoke to his disciples um, when they were in the room waiting, right? Um, they were beaten down and broken, and their friend and leader had been crucified. Jesus appears to them, and, and he offers them peace. Peace be with you. There was nothing left for them to fear. Christ had been resurrected in victory, and and likewise, many of us come into this place week after week, and we are beaten down and broken by the world outside. And these words are meant to be a reminder for you. So, so really, peace be with you. Peace to all of us this morning. Anyway, my name is Drew, and I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. We're beginning a new sermon series today. Um, for the next four weeks, we'll be discussing holiness. And before moving forward, though, it's, it's important that we, we define the word holiness. When we speak of, of God's holiness, the word holiness gives reference to God's unrivaled otherness, his unrivaled otherness. He belongs to a category all to himself. By his very nature, he is so clean and exalted as to be unapproachable to us because we are, are lowly and unclean. And so, so when we speak of man's holiness, we must consider our holiness to be a derivative of God's holiness. In other words, God is holy and his holiness comes from within himself. And we are unholy and our holiness must come from outside ourselves. God has to give it to us. Okay, so today, um, this morning, we will be looking at God's holiness out of the Old Testament book of Isaiah, which Brandon just read. And if you'll bear with me, I would like to introduce the sermon in the same way that Isaiah introduces this passage. Chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah begins with the following phrase. In the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, so this seems like a minor detail. And, and, and you wonder whether Isaiah would have lost anything at all by leaving it out. He could have just said, I saw the Lord, and he would have had my attention. Right? Right? But for the ancient Israelite, this brief phrase would have given an immediate context for what Isaiah was going to describe next. So th throughout the Old Testament, the Lord was to be Israel's king. He led them out of bondage. He defeated their enemies. He governed them with strength and justice. But the people rejected his leadership. They wanted an earthly ruler a human king. And so God gave them over to that request. He gave them what they wanted. And over centuries, Israel watched helplessly as kings came and went. King after king after king fell short. Even, even the great king David fell short. And the tension continued to build as Israel sought a truly righteous ruler, but there was none to be found. There was no ruler worthy of Israel's throne. No ruler worthy to sit at God's right hand. And then came Uzziah. And 2 Chronicles 26 tells us that Uzziah reigned for 52 years, which was longer than any king before him. 
The vast majority of his reign was faithful, prosperous, and right in the eyes of the Lord. Scripture says he was marvelously helped by God. Under Uzziah's leadership, Israel enjoyed an unprecedented era of prosperity. They saw massive construction projects, the fortification of cities, decisive military victories, new military, military technologies, unrivaled economic growth, and a national air of confidence. The book of Isaiah even describes the temple courts overflowing with worshipers. The pews were full. The people credited God with their national prosperity, but their faith had no bearing on their daily lives. That's why the book of Isaiah was written. The people were not holy. They were not distinct from the non-Israelites around them. So here is my introductory question. Does that sound familiar to us at all? An era of great prosperity wherein the people of God were blinded by their, by their own accomplishments and toys and nationalistic pride. This could just as easily describe the church here in the United States. And that's the lens through which I'd like for us to, re- to, to read and receive Isaiah 6. So why should you keep listening? Because you have to. And, and because like Israel, like Israel, our society desperately needs to hear from Isaiah. We need to catch Isaiah's vision of the holiness of God. Chapter 6 drops us into the midst of a national crisis. King Uzziah was a bona fide national hero. And the Israelites were probably wondering, could this be the righteous king we've been waiting for? Then, in his strength, Uzziah fell victim to pride. He enters the temple to burn incense, which the king was not permitted to do. This was a ritual reserved for the priests and for very good reason. And so he was struck with leprosy and quarantined to die in obscurity. Israel's national future was uncertain because Israel's king was dead. Chapter 5 concludes with darkness and distress falling over the land. That's setting the scene for Isaiah 6. Israel's king was dead. And then Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. In all of his glory and splendor and authority, God reveals himself once again to the nation of Israel, and he appears as if to say, Uzziah is dead. But the king is not dead. Your God still reigns. And I want us to linger for a bit on Isaiah's vision. I want for us to see what he saw. In fact, if you'd like, uh, just close your eyes and and redeem your imagination this morning. I know that might be a little bit cheesy, um, but I really don't want us to fly through Isaiah 6 without really pausing, really pausing to picture in our minds what is happening here, what, what Isaiah is seeing here, okay? Imagine the king of the universe sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up. His presence fills every square inch of the temple. 
Isaiah's gaze is immediately cast down in humility. Surrounding the throne are angelic beings of the highest order. Even they cannot bear to look upon God's glory. Isaiah struggles to find the words to describe them, but he clearly hears them calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the earth quakes. The foundations of the temple shake violently at the booming sound of God's voice. The house of the Lord fills with smoke. And again, the Hebrew language fails Isaiah. He cannot fully describe what he sees, but clearly he is terrified, humiliated in the presence of supreme authority. This is the glory and the splendor and the majesty of God. The the seraphim sing, holy, holy, holy. Why three holies? Because in the Hebrew language, if you wanted to emphasize a word, you would just repeat it. It it was the Hebrew equivalent of bold or italics. You see this technique used throughout Scripture, but, but never is a word repeated three times except in reference to God. He is holy, holy, holy. And look at Isaiah's response. Like Moses in Exodus 24, who who saw God but could only describe God's feet, Isaiah can only describe the hem of God's robe. He's looking down. One does not stand eye to eye with God Almighty. He declares, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The word for lost here reveals Isaiah's terror. It means to be ruined or to be cut off or to cease to exist. So he wasn't just humbled, he was devastated and he was preparing to face judgment and death. Before the throne of God above, who is the very source of light and life, the darkness and the death within us is laid bare. Isaiah stands naked, before the throne of God. He is leprous, alone, and awaiting his death like Uzziah. And this is characteristic of a true encounter with God. How can we know whether we've truly encountered the God of the Bible? We see our sin for what it is, and we are humiliated. And at this point, you might be thinking, great, another sermon about how sinful I am, right? But Isaiah is not done yet. There's so much more to this story, and the good news is coming. God will minister to us in our despair. But we, we need to dwell here a bit longer. We need to dwell here a bit longer, because like it or not, our calling in this passage is to fall on our faces in repentance before the holiness of God. Our calling in this passage is to fall on our faces in repentance before the holiness of God. So what prevents us from responding to God's holiness appropriately, from responding as Isaiah responds? When we read this passage, what prevents us from responding like Isaiah? Honestly, I don't think many of us, and and this is myself included, 
I don't think many of us have the categorical capacity to appreciate God's holiness in conceptual terms. We, we don't know how to file this sort of authority. And I think we don't know how to file this sort of authority because we're living in the midst of an authority crisis. And I don't mean, I don't just mean having to choose between Donald Trump, Trump and Hillary Clinton. Um, when I say authority crisis, I mean, I mean we have a weak theology of authority, which makes it very difficult for us to respect authority. Authority in our culture has become weightless in many ways. And the question is never whether or not we're under authority. We're all under authority. The question is which authorities we're willing to recognize. We live in an individualistic, democratic, humanistic society. We've taken freedom, which is a biblical concept, and we've made ourselves into gods. The idea that morality is relative is rooted in an understanding of mankind that ascribes to each and every individual total ethical authority. We all get to determine right from wrong in our society, which means none of us gets to determine right from wrong. This is moral anarchy. Now, now there is a God a supreme authority who desires to make order out of this chaos, but that would require that we recognize and submit to his authority, even when we disagree with him. And so we're caught in this cultural catch-22. God commands us to honor our parents, and yet we slander them before our friends. God commands us to submit to our political leaders, yet we pour out contempt on any who don't agree with us. God commands us to obey our masters, and yet we complain about our bosses. God commands us to submit to his authority as exercised through the local church, and yet many of us are just one bad sermon away from joining the church down the street. God's authority has become weightless to us. He has become less worthy of our time than Netflix less commanding than our appetite for things we don't need, less compelling, for an less compelling than an advertisement for Apple's latest gimmick. Does God have the authority to tell you you're wrong? Can he reorient your beliefs and your worldview? Or does he just happen to squeeze into the worldview that you've already self-determined as truth? Because the God of Isaiah 6 will not be molded into your image. When he appears, our reality trembles and quakes. We change. He does not fit into our world. We fit into his. And so like the, Israel, like the Israelites in Isaiah's day, American Christianity, I think, has lost its vision of a holy God. In a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer writes, and it should be on the screens behind me, A.W. Tozer writes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Sojourn. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about our church. If it's right, everything else will follow. If we only see Christ as a suffering servant, we will fail to see him as a conquering king who commands our allegiance. If we only see Christ as an affirming friend, what will it matter how we live? And if we only see God as a fun and forgiving daddy, we will have no category for him as a loving yet disciplining father. We need to see our shortcomings in light of God's holiness. In light of Isaiah's vision, only then will we understand the deep theological problem of our sin. We can't even define sin apart from God's holiness, which means we can't really understand grace apart from God's holiness. Okay, so where do we look? If we want to see God's holiness, where do we look? Well, I say we look at John chapter 12. Verses 40 and 41 will be on the screens behind me. Now, verse 40 is just a direct quote from Isaiah 6. And then in verse 41, John says, Isaiah said these things because Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw whose glory? Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. And thus, if we want to see God's holiness, we look to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In a world gone haywire, in a world where, as the book of Judges says, everyone does what is right in his own eyes, Jesus appears to us as our supremely authoritative and righteous king. And look, look, look at God's humility. Look how, look how far he went to redeem us. Israel rejected God's divine authority. We, we discussed that earlier. They asked him for a human king. So what did God do? Did he throw a fit? Did he destroy them on the spot? No. God gave them over to their human kings. He, he gave them what they wanted. And the human kings failed them. So God, the divine king they rejected, became a man. The man, Jesus Christ, who abandoned his own authority and submission to the Father's authority, was crucified as a common criminal, resurrected in glory, and as a human, took back his throne. Do you catch that? Israel asked for a human king, and God became their human king. 
Israel asked for a human king, and God became their human king. This is the very essence of love and beauty and meaning. God's holiness finds its fullest expression in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Isaiah Isaiah saw the temple quake because God was on the throne. We have seen the temple quake because God was on the cross. Jesus was cut off. Jesus was made unholy so that we could be grafted in, so that we could be made holy. Do you know this God? Do you know this God? Because if God on the throne brings Isaiah to his knees, how much more should God on the cross bring us to our knees? And this is precisely where we come to the remainder of our passage this morning. I'm going to backtrack a bit and read beginning in verse 5. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So Isaiah stood before the holiness of God Almighty, and he was never so self-aware. He sees the one true God, infinitely authoritative, and he feels compelled to declare, I'm a man. I'm an unclean man. I'm a lost man. You are God. I am man. He crumbles in terror and shame before the throne. There seems, to be, there seems to be some quality of God's holiness that implicitly commands holiness from Isaiah. In that moment, he gets it. But in that moment, he can't produce it. He gets it, but he can't produce it. He was hopeless. He was painfully aware that true holiness must come from outside himself. What, what a paradoxically blessed place to be. Because in the midst of our despair, our great king draws near to us and ministers to us. He takes away our guilt. He, he atones for our sin and he makes us holy. In that moment, holiness is at once a calling we cannot fulfill, and a gift we cannot deserve. There's a beautiful irony here because because God is holy, we die in his presence, and because God is holy, we live in his presence. We are clean now in Christ. And just as the seraphim applied the coal to Isaiah's lips. The Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to our hearts. And at this point, at this point, I think we can begin to empathize with the Jews who so adamantly uh, denied the deity of Christ. 
look at what the early Christians were claiming. They were claiming that the same king who revealed himself to Isaiah had willingly put himself on the altar. If it weren't true, it would have been blasphemy. If that weren't true, it would have been blasphemy. The king had become the coal. We rejected him as king, so he passed through fire to take back his throne, to take back his kingdom, to take back his people. Okay, so what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us now? First and foremost, this should give us hope. God does not leave us in our repentant mourning. He draws near, he ministers to us, and he removes our uncleanness. And all, all who humble themselves before the throne of God will be exalted. To all who say, woe is me, Christ will say, your sin is forgiven. Your guilt is taken away. This also means we can now live boldly before God. We can approach his throne in confidence, in prayer. And we can preach his word, his gospel with reverence, but, but with freedom and joy. Because we've truly tasted the sweetness of God's grace, we can, we can recommend his grace to others without fear, as, as those who are recommending a song we've actually heard, or a book we've actually read, or a land we've actually visited. And lastly, this makes us a humble and submissive people. When we see who God is and we realize what sin is and we taste what grace is, our understanding of authority changes completely. We are delighted to know that God exercises his kingship, his authority time after time for our good. And we know that he is exceedingly powerful and ultimately in control, which, which frees us to submit to our parents and our political leaders and our bosses and the church. We don't have to continue self-selecting which authority deserves our submission. We see submission as something beautiful and holy in and of itself. We see submission as something beautiful and holy in and of itself. We learn to lay our lives down for one another with joy. And in our parishes, this changes both the counsel we give to others and the counsel that we're willing to receive from others. If it's true that, that this holy and gracious God ministers to me, speaks to me, through my community, then I should be able to submit to any of you. So in conclusion, we see that, that God's holiness reveals the true nature of our sin, which makes grace sweeter. And this applies in a couple different ways to a couple different people. Um, on, on the one hand, some of us are swimming in our pride. And we need to see what Isaiah saw. We need to see what Isaiah saw. We need to be humbled deeply before the throne of a holy God. 
to know that while he loves us, he's not impressed by us. And on the other hand, some of us are drowning in our despair. And we need to receive what Isaiah received. We need to receive what Isaiah received. God loves you deeply. And his gentle ministry of atonement is sufficient sufficient to take away your guilt and your shame. His gentle ministry of atonement is sufficient to take away your guilt and your shame. Believe that. Let's pray.